in fintech, it all comes down to, are you two or three years ahead of everybody else? And have you developed a system that works? So when people see that this is an obvious place that needs revolution in the financial space, you're there. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders, coming to you from New York City. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode... I sit down with Daniel Cohen, co-founder of Cohen Circle, an investment firm, Cohen and Company, an asset manager with over 2.2 billion of assets under management, and the Bancorp, a bank specialized in fintech as a service and payments. Notably, Daniel has had a successful career in banking along with his co-founder and mother, Betsy Cohen. In this episode, we discuss the turmoil of U.S. regional banks in 2023 and what it means for the industry, impact of some of the biggest changes in banking and financial services over the last decades, why bankers should never overestimate the loyalty of your customers, opportunities for banks to work closely with fintechs, and just a lot more. Daniel, welcome to Fintech Leaders. How are you doing today? Thank you, Miguel. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm very honored to be here, and I'm happy to be considered for some strange reason a fintech leader. There's so many great people in the field. So I'm just happy, you know, fortunate enough to have a decent background in banking, having been chairman of an institution and a co-founder for 20 plus years and now involved in multiple elements of the fintech space. So we have a lot to talk about. We're living through tumultuous times in for our industry. And I think right now people want to hear from the voice of experience. And when it comes to experience and in the finance space, you certainly have it. Take us a little bit through that career. Because initially you co-founded, along with your mother, actually, Betsy Cohen, co-founded the, the Bancorp. So take us through specifically co-founding Bancorp and how you guys grew it and where it eventually led you. Well, my experience, I borrow a lot of it from my mom and my parents. Betsy was involved in banking since the late 60s, early 70s as CEO of a bank. She sold her second bank, I think, in 1998. It might have been 1997. It was saw an opportunity. She said, I'm finished with branch banking. I said, we should really do something in non-branch banking. So we started up the bank corp. The idea really was originally to be what to really serve the, you know, unbanked and also do affinity banking for people. But we were very early on before the phone that was next to it. That was really an impossible mission. So we pivoted into really focusing on powering fintechs and enabling fintechs and have built the Bancorp. I left in 2021. 
uh, built the Bancorp to really be one of the really the premier bank that's powering smaller fintechs. Although now we've gotten to the point where we're not really powering the smaller ones, we're powering the larger ones. And we learned a lot on the way. So learned a lot about banking. Fortunately, started off knowing a lot about banking. So that was good. And it's, you know, I certainly agree. These are interesting times. There has been a lot of tumult, but I would say it's no more, you know, this is banking. Banking is a weird business. And we all can agree it's a cyclical business, but not like diapers or soda or anything else like that. It's not a consumer consumable, but it has a lot in common with those older industries. But when there's a crisis, it comes all at once. And it's highly correlated, especially when you have 4,000 institutions all over the United States of differing sizes, where the risks are shared to a large extent. So whether it's credit or it's interest rates, it all hits all of a sudden. And I think that's what we see in the beginning of 2023 is the reality of banks dealing with the mistakes that they made in the context of an interest rate shock. Yeah. And you mentioned that this is banking, right? And that implies that there are some core fundamentals of the banking industry that are just timeless from, you know, Phoenician traders to JP Morgan to today. But I'm guessing also there have been some changes to banking since you got in the industry, you know, a few decades ago. If there are any changes you've observed, what what are those? Well, the obvious biggest change is is that we're living through the first time where you can instantaneously request all of your money to be instantaneously wired to another institution. That's brand new, right? You know, those banks still have the protocol of you have to go into the branch and sign a wire request to get it done. They are thinking, boy, I didn't adopt this technology and I am very happy that I didn't, right? But, I mean, ultimately, it just allows you to cast an instantaneous vote of no confidence in your bank, right? That was always the case. But, you know, in terms of the most impactful changes to banking, it's really come by the speed of payments that, you know, we live in a world where if you look compared to 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you could make comparisons about the velocity of money, the ability to transfer things the ability to do so many different things overlay that's changed over the last 50 or 60 years. And over the last 10, you know, the ability for the consumers to walk away from their bank account relatively quickly and the ability to manage large amounts of information for the consumer is, is great, but it's only going to continue increasing and the expectations are going to continue increasing. And so I would say that you know, fintech is evolutionary. It ultimately meets the the needs of a consumer to manage their money in a bank. And that's going to simply continue because today's banks and their payment systems are just impossible to replace. You can't pay cash anymore for everything that you're doing. You can't find, you know, you, you, I mean, you can find other ways of transferring money, but nothing is as convenient as having a bank account. Having a neobank account, 
having the means of payments that are facilitated by MasterCard, Visa, American Express, Discover, all of those different ways. It allows you to take your money, use your money, manage your money, borrow your money, and you know even today lend your money in lots of different ways. You mentioned that these banks are suffering through mistakes. So do you think SVB, First of all, with Signature, others, you think these failures were avoidable? Well, let's put Signature aside. But, I mean, I, I, I will group it in all together in the following category also to a certain extent because Signature was a bank because of their heavy move into crypto, ran afoul of the regulators. Whereas First Republic and SVB, First Republic didn't run afoul of the regulators, but they were in an era where you can't use regulatory arbitrage, we're building their bank on fundamentally a regulatory arbitrage. So if we look at what happened, what's the difference between First Republic, SVB, and other banks that are out there uh, and much more healthy, which um, you know, I know there are many, many more healthy banks. The difference was fundamentally they took a business model that relied on them holding long-term fixed-grade assets on balance sheet without any exit and thought that, okay, I don't have to mark these to market. But still, in today's day and age, the assets are transparent to your customers. 30, 40 years ago, the customer doesn't have the amount of information that he has today. He's participating in a bank run based on rumors that have to circulate wildly through newspapers and other places like that in local communities, you know, through his barber or someplace else like that. Today, he opens up Yahoo Finance and knows that First Republic is in trouble, knows that First Republic, before he knows that they're in trouble, he'll know that they have a balance sheet that's full of $100 billion worth of mortgages at long-term rates. Right, compare that to 1975, where there's no way he was going to dig through the filings that were done with the SEC or other places like that because they were just too difficult to access for him. Today, they're accessible 24 7. He can just take a look at them without having to request any documentation or be a shareholder or anything else like that. So he can see that there's a balance sheet that's full of fixed rate loans that are unhedged, that are subject to lots of losses. And even though under the rules that were adopted in 2019, those aren't subject to stress testing by the regulator, everybody knows that you have assets that don't reflect fair value and that you have, you know, at least the doubt, which is usually enough to sink a bank, if not a certainty that there is a hole in your balance sheet that you're unable to fill rapidly enough to make it okay. Consumer that walks away happened in SVB, happened in First Republic. In those banks that are, you know, still there, the question is, are those dynamics the same? I think in a lot of them, no. In Pacific West, no. In other banks, no. So... We're dealing with situations where asset liability management was misjudged. The fact that from a regulatory point of view, you still had the capital technically, even if your assets were way underwater because they were either securities or loans held to maturity. But 
The reality is I think neither the regulators nor the depositors really wanted to play along with the fiction that there was no impact from having 30-year mortgages that were made at 2.5% in an area where it seems like our 0% interest rate environment is ending. And related to that, I've heard you speak in the past, the bankers should not overestimate the loyalty of their customers, right? How do you control for that? You shouldn't overestimate the loyalty of your customers. You know, I've been involved in banking for a long time. I've dealt with loan officers for a long time. I've dealt with customers for a long time, right? I don't have, I mean, a lot of people look at it like you have a relationship with a customer. Many bankers, look, they're going to give you a better deal than somebody else because they have a relationship with you. The customer looks at it, you're going to give them a better deal than somebody else because they have a relationship with you. The reality is, is that if you have a relationship with somebody, all you're asking for on the lending side is the ability really to take the last look at whatever the market is saying and that whatever the loan that you're trying to make is and decide whether you want to do it. It's not a highly loyal relationship. Often lenders believe, oh, that guy, we're so close. No matter what I do, he's going to be there with me. But we're talking about money. And as we know, the best way to destroy a friendship is to involve money in it because no matter how loyal your friends are, the money is very important to them. <laughs> so, you know, you're dealing with a relationship with customers where they're making commercial decisions. They're often business customers. They're making business decisions. So don't overestimate the length of time that they've been part of your universe to think that, oh, they're going to stand by you in your moment of trouble because they've been so happy for 20 years. They might be happy for 20 years, but when they have risk to their money, they're going to take it and move it to another bank as quickly as possible. We're talking a day or two after the latest Berkshire shareholder meeting. And one of the things Buffett has been talking about is he anticipates more turbulence for banks, right? But he's clear to say that deposits are safe, are probably safe. How bad could it get? And is it as simple as blaming it to high interest rates? Well, look, you know, Buffett is famous for saying, when, you know, when the tide goes out, we see you swimming naked. But you know, it's the same sort of a thing. With higher interest rates, they're not a problem for many banks, right? And they're not a problem in and of themselves, right? I mean, there probably is some activity, even we can admit it, fintech, which is just bull market nonsense, right? You know, everybody looking, I mean, you can smell a bull market from the fact that people who create ideas will have the sense that I, if I can create an idea, I can get funded for it. No matter, you know, even if it's just modestly plausible, right? So everybody's willing to take risk because there's too much money and too few ideas. That's probably a sign that we're near a market peak, right? And we're probably in a realm of overactivity. Interest rates are probably too low in those environments. And the, you know, the basis of the economy is getting rid of those companies that are profitable and keeping those companies and allocating capital to those that do. It's why 70% of companies wind up not being worth 
the amount of money actually invested in them. And the 30% that do are the ones that really help drive healthy economies, change the world, provide services, do a lot of other things that are fantastic and have a long life ahead of them. So I do think that in a world of higher interest rates, we are going to see other victims who haven't been managing their assets and liabilities appropriately, who will become undercapitalized, who will have depositors demanding their money back. And I think at this point, if you haven't managed the situation so you're not overexposed in a risky bank, that's really your fault. If you have more than $250,000 in a depository account at an institution that isn't credit worthy or has been in the news, I, th I think it's a mistake that you've made. And it's hard to believe that the government could really just guarantee forever people's deposits, uh, 100% of them, because, you know, the two banks that failed or the three banks that failed could be systematically significant. But there's no basis for the FDIC saying that you get 100% of your money back for every small bank that fails, and that every small bank is systemically important. It does make sense, perhaps, at this point to raise the deposit limitations, right? the deposit insurance limitations, but probably not to do away with them. And it's going to create opportunities for people that help people have a single interface to the banking system and allow them to keep their money in multiple institutions so that they maximize their federal insurance. But I think in general, the banking system as a whole is safe. There are institutions that will fail. There you know, probably is, I wouldn't call it contagion, but I think that when institutions fail like this, credit does become the credit conditions change fundamentally. And I think, you know, I do agree with the consensus that I'm carrying, which is that a recession is coming in the, you know, fourth quarter of, of this year, first quarter of next year, and that we'll see reduced business activity. But, but who really knows? We're going to talk about FinTech in a second, but staying on banks and, and more talking about banking leaders. When over your career, you've interacted with several banks and bank CEOs and bank entrepreneurs, what defines a great banking leader in your experience? I think, sadly enough, the thing that defines a great banker is people having confidence in him. So if you're able to inspire confidence, you often are able to build a great bank. If you're not able to inspire confidence, you're not going to be a great banker. So that the actual skill set is one of, you know, it's not an entrepreneurial skill set. It's one of risk management. It's constant risk management. And then inspiring confidence that you are managing the risks and doing that in a way to know that you actually have to participate in the marketplace. Because if you're too conservative, then you're just not participating in lending. You're just not participating in making your customers happy. You're just not participating in the marketplace. But if you can be just a little bit on the right side of the marketplace, you can do extremely well. So let's talk about the marriage of fintech and traditional banking. It's something you have observed up close for a long time. And it's a partnership that is, in my view, only strengthening 
the collaboration between fintechs and banks. Where do you envision this collaboration growing over the coming years? Well, I mean, if we exclude technology for brokers and asset managers and insurance companies, you know, the rest of it is actually banking and fintech. It's about lending money. It's about taking deposits. It's about, you know, back office systems for financial institutions. I think for a long time, we've seen that people who are lending in a certain niche are able to do extraordinarily well because they have a lot of experience there, right? Whether, you know, banks should not be doing 100% of their lending or most of their lending in one area to one customer group. But developing expertise is incredibly important to do so. And the ability of a bank to deploy assets using fintechs to access their customers and other people's customers and acquire new customers by making loans, that's something that's just going to continue and accelerate. And I think that it's going to reduce the cost base of banks, reduce the employee base of banks, reduce the personnel that are needed to do any transaction and create huge efficiencies going forward. So I see on the lending side and the depositing side or the customer side, on the bill payment side, all of these are areas where expectations are constantly being raised. And so the opportunity for banks to really work with fintechs is going to continue tremendously. And, you know, that does expand somewhat to the neobank space where if a neobank is able to service their clients better, it's a better place for fintechs and other banks to make loans and do other things today. Today, we're working with enormous amount of computing power and enormous amount of connectivity, which allows people to actually like complete embedded transactions you know, in just a few minutes, if you think about it, you can go to a Best Buy and apply for a Citibank credit card as you're checking out if you don't have a Best Buy credit card already. And they'll give you a 10% discount because it's valuable to them to generate that new Citibank Best Buy visa. That's just an example. But you can do it literally there at the checkout machine in five minutes, three minutes, two minutes, whatever, you know, whatever it takes. The technology that you think to be able to grant credit, you know, in the store on a merchant terminal, it's an incredible partnership. And often fintechs have the ability to provide incredible partnerships to the banks they're in by allowing banks to provide insurance, to provide mortgages that they don't want to hold on balance sheet necessarily, to provide all sorts of credit opportunities. Uh, to let people, you know, borrow money on a consumer loan, consolidate their credit card, to allow people to have access to international payment systems that they might not be able to have access to. So to do that all within the context of a banking interface, which is no longer the branch, but rather the app that you have on your phone with your institution or with a non-bank institution you know, the opportunity for that to expand through APIs and other sources is tremendous. And the opportunity that you have, I mean, remember the technology that we have today in terms of credit scoring and the ability that people have to say, this borrower looks like the kind of borrower that will have this kind of default rate or that kind of default rate is not age old, Right. I mean, it's newer than putting people on the moon, which now 
Yeah, I was born in 69. So my lifespan represents, you know, the teeny portion of the history of the world where people have been able to visit the moon or send things, <laughs> send things up to the moon. But credit scoring as a meaningful algorithm for providing credit is newer than that. And the development of all sorts of instant credit is newer than that. You know, used to, if you knew a store, you could go into a store and you would buy now, pay later. That's the way where most business was done, you know, forever. Before Diner's Card, you went to restaurants that you knew because you didn't want to have to take a huge wad of cash with you necessarily. They sent you the bill if you were a regular customer of the restaurant of the grocer, of the drive-in store, of the cleaners, all these different places, right? Today, that's changed fundamentally. And the ability for anybody to provide credit to anybody potentially based on their track record of credit access through credit bureaus is new. But I think that we're seeing the beginning of an age where that sort of its way out or only one factor among many that are really factored in. And we're still very young into the ability to really make credit available in different ways instantaneously to people based on much more than simply a credit score that shows what happened in the last two, three, four years for somebody as far as them paying their bills. Daniel, I talk to banking leaders who are working on sort of some sort of partnership or integration with a fintech company. And behind the scenes, oftentimes you hear these tech guys don't understand what they're doing. This partnership integration is a nightmare. And also you talk to some fintech founders and they tell you it's impossible to work with banks. I mean, that's not always, but in some cases it happens. Now, there's some cases where that partnership is very successful. But for those, I guess both bankers and fintech leaders that are looking to work together, you know, having worked with many fintechs, having onboarded many fintech partners, what do you think works best? What should both sides of, of the table keep in mind when building this partnership? No, it's, it's a very good question, right? I mean, today, it, you know, it's the most important thing for a bank, and this is something that changed after the financial crisis and changed in the mentality of the regulator, it has extended to every way the bank operates, which is that a banker today needs to remember that compliance is first. Consumer compliance and treating a consumer fairly and not being not taking advantage of them in any way is the core operating procedure of the bank. It has to be the first tenant, the first thing you think of, and the last thing that you double check. So, you know, that's a key element in that if you have a customer and you're working with a fintech, right, whether it's that, you know, it's the fintech's client and they have a neobank account at your institution or there's some credit provision through the bank and it's integrated into the banking process or the payments or anything else like that, that consumer is your customer from the bank's point of view. And the regulators will drive the bank crazy if they don't treat that customer correctly. And that's probably the way that it should be. 
Uh, and that's that's certainly the way that banks who are thriving today are thinking about their customer base and their relationship with their customer base. So from the fintech's point of view, that mentality is like, well, it's my customer. I'm lending to them. What is the bank doing this? Why do they have to do all of this? Why are there so many risks? Why, you know, why is there so much third-party vendor maintenance? They can't you know, experiment with their customers or anything else like that. Why can't they do that? Now, I remember in 2008, I was in a board meeting with regulators where one of the directors, who's still heavily involved in the banking system, actually asked, you know, we had, we have some customer complaints at the bank. Every bank does. And the regulators want that to be zero customer complaints from a rational business point of view. A bank that has a hundred million cards issued will have a certain number of complaints about it. And certain number of them will be lodged through the FDIC. He asked, well, how can we get the complaints to zero? There's always going to be complaints. We have 100 million customers. That was not the answer that the regulators wanted to hear. And in fact, today, he probably wouldn't even remember that he said that because it's so anathema to the way that the tone at the top really needs to be. We want zero complaints. Our goal is zero complaints. It's as important as in the mining industry today that you have zero fatalities. So 50 years ago, if you had fatalities, that was part of the mining business. Today, that's simply not appropriate. And so if you look at it, you have to look at the way that the bank really operates within the context of its regulatory environment and its customer relationships. And on the fintech side, you know, I'm not saying that the fintechs shouldn't be frustrated with the banks, but they have to understand why they're frustrated with the banks and the opportunity to work with banks means that if you can bring a sense that the tone at the top of your organization is compliance first, customer relationships first, and profitability second, or third, or fourth, the more you can convey that tone at the top and show that it's substantial uh, all the way through the organization, the fewer issues that you're going to have implementing things with banks on the credit sponsorship side, on the bin sponsorship side, in lots of different other ways. You've also been doing some venture capital fintech investing. When did you start venturing into VC? Well, we were backing, we were effectively backing, you know, venture companies at the bank court. We were working with the, you know, many of them and letting them in. We were the only outlet that would let them into the banking system. So our experience rep really represents all the way through 1999. If you think about it, the Bancorp was a venture company initially too, because it was basically revolutionizing. It was a payments fintech. We were providing payment services initially to many of the leaders in the early 2000s who now are major players in the, in the industry. So we've been doing it forever. We've had an organized effort. Betsy left the bank in 2014, and we started up Cohen Circle, which makes our own and venture capital investments for, for ourselves and partners. And we've really been doing that systematically since 2015. It is a finance business, so we are believers that you have to organize. And so you're seeing as many of the opportunities that you can see 
and therefore find the best of them and focused on the ones where you could actually understand the competitive environment. Because venture is like a candy store, right? You're out there and like it is exciting, right? Everything is like, wow, this is going to revolutionize this. And the leaders are highly entrepreneurial and they're really ready to develop things that are great. And everybody has a story of total available market being this so big. I'm going to do this. We're the first one to do this. Well, are you really the first one to do this? Right. And how are you really, do you really have that lead well enough ahead of somebody else? Because in fintech, it all comes down to, are you two or three years ahead of everybody else? And have you developed a system that works? So when people see that this is an obvious place that needs revolution in the financial space, you're there. You think of the large companies that have done that. Adyen, they were there for what they're doing a couple of years ahead of everybody else, right? If you need know, integrating a agnostic as to what kind of sales point it is into a vendor relationship that's very meaningful. Klarna, all of the buy now, pay later companies that have been successful, maybe they're not worth 70 billion, but they are worth billions, if not tens of billions. I mean, if you look at all those companies uh, that have done that, they've been able to be there just a couple of years ahead and have technology that works. And so we've been doing this since 2015, and we've been trying to identify those areas where we can see that there are market leaders in need of creation that haven't already been created, and that companies that have started to work on things can be a few years ahead. There's, you know, there's fascinating experiment today, whether it's in payments and there's going to continue to be revolutions in the way that people reorganize their credit cards and organize them to pay, but move with the payments, be agnostic to you pay for something and then you decide which credit card it went on to and how to manage your payments that way. Or maybe you should have done buy now, pay later for this. And you can organize it not in the second where you have to give your credit card or swipe your phone, but actually when you have a chance to think, I should have put that on my Citibank card because there's a 10% discount for using it in the next seven days to buy this good or that good or pay at Starbucks or whatever it happens to be, right? So payments, again, we're going to see you know, a renovation of the way that consumers look at their wallet. It is only starting because of the phone payments and contactless payments and the way you can reorganize things around that. It's not just, I've chosen this piece of plastic. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. It's you have your phone, you're swiping your phone. Which card could you put it on? Should I put it on a card? Should I use buy, buy now, pay later? I think all those things are going to continue to change substantially. The lending relationships, what's good for you in terms of how you manage your overall credit. And in businesses, the way that they manage their overall credit, some credit intensive businesses like people who are renovating the housing stock in the United States. Like if you have, you know, if you're working with the you know, average people in the United States, right. And over my lifetime, over the last you know, 50 years, but certainly over the last 30 years that I've seen that I've been involved in business. You've seen changes in the way that people have expectations for where they're going to live, right? Where people are living 30 years ago that was considered okay would be considered like just substandard. 
by an enormous amount today. So the opportunity, we have all of this housing stock in this country that needs to be renovated just as housing is getting more expensive to build and more difficult to build. So the that's a credit-intensive community right there. And those people are finding new ways to use credit. But all the industries, whether it's the farmers or the retail space or craft makers or anybody else, payables, receivables, all these things, the world is changing for the way that they're paying. And so we're just excited to participate in what we consider, you know, a continual revolution. That's even putting aside all the various things of what banks can do with their customers and how they can monetize their customers differently, how they can figure out whether these are customers they want to deal with in a relatively short period of time using AI, and, and frankly, how they can get rid of, you know, a lot of people who may really actually be way overpaid for what their capabilities are with using AI. I honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if in two years, a credit report written by a chat GPT equivalent would be almost as good or better than most of the credit reports that I read today. And so what do I need to pay three $200,000 analysts for if I can replace some with, you know, a thousand GPUs? Yeah, I mean, we, we're also excited about the industry, and I hope we co-invest together soon. And I was going to say, Daniel, before I let you go, tell us a little bit about the partnership with your mom, building a company with your mom. Because usually when I think of a business run by a, a mother-son duo, it might be like a, an Italian restaurant in the south of Italy, you know? <laughs> How has that worked over the years? Look, Betsy has been an innovator. She was one of the first female law professors in the United States. She was, you know, revolutionary for her time. She was one of the first bank CEOs who was a woman. She's had a career of doing incredibly great things. The opportunity that I have to have to be partners with her, right, would be fantastic to begin with. Then, you know, if you double count the fact that I can, you know, count my business time as time spent with my mom. So, I mean, yes, okay, occasionally I get, you know, I get the feeling like there might be a sense that I'm not spending enough time with my mom, but it's absurd at the same time, and I think my mom realizes that. And then on top of that, obviously you get to combine everything together. It's fantastic to have a fantastic partner who genuinely loves you and you love them. So, I mean, like for me, it's been a fantastic situation. I only have the mom that I have. So I don't know what it's like working with somebody else's mom. I've worked with other people's moms. Some of it's been good. Some of it's been bad. But, you know, Betsy's fantastic. She's a revolutionary thinker. She thinks outside the box. She's incredible experience and has been always willing to innovate. And in general, you know, personifies the mentality of putting the client first. Her relationships, she'll go to the mat for so it's been a mentality of pitching in when somebody's in need that she's taught me tremendously, not abandoning them, but rather, you know, nurturing the relationship through cycles, business cycles, other things like that. And that, you know, I think has been great. I've learned an enormous amount from her. I think 
you know, as I get older, I have my own independent experience, but I have built other things, an asset management firm, broker dealer, a real estate finance company independently. And so I think, you know, we have a great exchange, an open one, and, you know, a super pleasant working environment. Well, Daniel, it's been an extensive conversation about all things finance and banking. So appreciate you taking the time and thanks for educating all of us. Thank you so much. I hope that we'll keep these conversations going in the future. No doubt. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Daniel Cohen. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. If you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.